My name is Liesl Ann, if you don't know me. I think we've been a member of this church for about 12 years. Are we trying to work it out? 12 years, Peter? 12 or 14 years. And um, it's a joy to be with you today and to be sharing with you. Onati, can you hear me properly? This mic seems to be very strange, deep position. We fine. <clears throat> Onati doesn't seem to be convinced. So this morning we are continuing our journey in the book of Luke. And if you want to start preparing by going to Luke 8 verses 1 to 15, that's where we're going to be reading shortly. Um, We're going to be doing a passage called the parable of the sower, something that we have heard many, many times. But my prayer is that this morning that this would be a new revelation, a new application for us. And I've based a large part of my teaching from a message from a guy called Paul Tripp. If you want to look him up, he's got the most hideous moustache, but he's someone worth following. Very wise man indeed. Last week, you will remember, Arno uh, walked us through the beautiful story of the woman who worships at Jesus' feet and takes her hair and spends this ridiculously extravagant amount of perfume at washing Jesus' feet, just in awe of him and in acknowledgement of how much she needed his forgiveness. And we see the story of her working out and walking the rest of her life just in worship and praise and bearing much fruit for Jesus. And today we are going to be encouraged to bear fruit for our Lord and Savior. So I've entitled my message this morning, Do You Have Ears to Hear? Jesus' words come to us. And may we hear his message this morning. As we remember who he is, and as we continue our weekly enjoyment of the communion, I don't know about you, but I'm really finding a new appreciation of the bread and cup. And be reminded again, and, and when we get into the meat of the passage, you're going to understand what I'm saying, is that we realize how fickle we are before God, and we really need his mercy And we really need to remember who he is, which is signified by the bread and the cup. So I'm excited for us this morning. I hope that you are getting a little bit excited too. You can show me by smiling with your eyes because I can't see your mouths. And I'm going to ask um, Han to please read for us. We're reading from Luke 8, verses 1 to 15. You can follow in your Bibles. Thanks, Han. Okay, so Luke 8, verse 1 to 15, it's from the NIV, the parable of the sower. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. 
As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered, withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So as we begin, we will note that, number one, Jesus is on a mission. We see verse 1 tells us that he traveled from town to town and from one village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus could have actually lived out his days sitting in the little village of Capernaum and knowing what he was called to do and waiting his time out. That would also have been seen to be obedient. But he was moved here. We see that he was moved. To, he saw these people. He saw their desperate need. And out of their need came his desire to meet it. And so he walks from village to village, town to town, seeing what they need, healing them, preaching to them, teaching them about the kingdom. And it shows us this beautiful heart of Jesus and God for us, that he really sees us. And this morning I pray that you would understand how much God sees you, but that also we would receive hope to know that we can't also just sit. We need to go and we need to move. And we need to reach those around us. So Jesus is on mission. Number two, Jesus' Jesus's mission was also with others. We read here that he wasn't alone. Verse 1 to 3 says, The twelve were with him, and we would have expected the disciples to be with him. But then there's a strange little tag here. We see that he's surrounded by all these women. Now, this may not seem strange to you now, but in first century Jewish custom, this was extremely extraordinary. Women were not seen or heard. They were deeply veiled. They weren't allowed to participate in commas. They were holed up in the back of the temple. The rabbis of the day actually didn't even think it was worth their while to teach them. So they were illiterate. 
And here comes Jesus, and we, we read in the passage that there's a whole bunch of these women following him. So that was interesting to me. And also, just doing a bit of research, I looked at the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament, and you just see this, this big disparity. Old Testament women were actually highly esteemed in their day, and they were very involved in teachings. But now we see this New Testament time, the women were really ostracized and put aside. The, there's a Jewish writing called the Talmud, which says that they were deeply veiled. So as a woman, if you walked in the streets, you kind of hid in the shadows. You, you certainly didn't look at a man eye to eye, and you, you wanted to disappear. You stayed at home. That is where you belonged. Some of the men here would say we need to stay at home as well, but <laughs> that's another conversation, men. Um, so this is the context, and here we see Jesus, and he's smashing this custom completely. He's writing this wrong. I love Jesus because he's always countercultural. So Jesus' mission includes everybody. Thank the Lord for that. So we see that he included women in this ministry, but there's also a little bit that interests me that these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So the women were actually helping physically and with their money to help Jesus in his mission. Interesting. We also read in the Gospels about Jesus often talking to women, face to face, one on one, and that was a huge taboo. So our Jesus um, is always a different one. We read here that there's a woman called Johanna, an important woman of high standing. Her husband managed King Herod's household. And then we read about Mary Magdalene. She was the woman that seven demons came out of her. And we read about her following Jesus from her healing. She was miraculously changed. And she chose to follow Jesus and worship him and just pour her life out to him. And then we read about Jesus appearing to her, first of all, after his resurrection. What a high honor. So we're reminded again this morning, as we hit into the meat of the passage, that this Jesus, our Jesus, in his great love, shatters the restrictive statuses of those that are set apart those that are ostracized, and his mission is an all-inclusive one. Galatians 3 verse 28 says it beautifully. It says, all people, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, can be one and enjoy unequaled freedom as children of God. Jesus wants us all to come to him. But in this parable, he's teaching his disciples that not all will respond to his message. So my point four is that his mission received different responses. Jesus uses parables to teach the people around him. So a parable is like a story. And we're not supposed to dissect it bit by bit to try to find application, but we're supposed to find the main message that Jesus is showing us through the parable. And this particular one, the parable of the sower, we have all heard it many, many times because it's what they call a source parable. It's really important. This message is something that Jesus is wanting us to hear this morning. So as we unlock this key, I want us to think a bit about the few attitudes that we come and we bring with us today. You see, it's not enough for us just to be in the room because we can sit here and not benefit at all. We can hear the word of the Lord preached and walk away utterly unchanged. 
We can even hear it and be filled with joy, but then forget it the minute we walk out the door. So let's hear this morning what God wants to tell us in his word. Just like the woman, let this be a watershed moment for you and for me. So Jesus was, through this teaching, sharing with the disciples and the people around him a very important secret to the kingdom. The Bible says that the word of God is supposed to act like a mirror so that we can look into it, we can see ourselves in light of it, and we can see how we actually look, who we actually are, reflected, and then hopefully forever changed by it. So Jesus was surrounded by these people, and he's talking about the different responses that people had to him. So we hear that there were scribes and Pharisees around him. We know they were plotting to kill him because they thought he was a blasphemer, because he called himself, he had the audacity to call himself the Son of God. He claimed authority over their law, that, um, the law of God, and they wanted him dead, plain and simple. Then you have his own family. And they were a little bit embarrassed by Jesus. They thought he's a little bit crazy. They're like, Jesus, can you just go home? Can you stay at home because you're embarrassing us? We, we don't know who you are. Then you have the disciples. And you may say to me, okay, well, the disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. But actually, they followed blindly. They were following this one who called himself the Messiah, but they were also still working out who he was. And then we have the great multitude of people around him who were mostly curious. They were following to see when the next spectacle was going to come along. What was the next healing? What was Jesus going to be doing? And so what is our response this morning? Let's look at this piece of scripture to guide and lead us. As I've said, it's called the parable of the sower, but I'm actually hoping that as we delve into it, you can understand that the soil is the the important thing. It should be the parable of the soil if we had to maybe rename it. So let's dive in. First of all, we hear that the first seeds fall on the hard path. See, I don't know why I'm fighting with this thing this morning. Feels like it's about to float in the air. No, it's I'm okay. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Thank you for bearing with me. So the seed falls on the hard path. If you still got your Bibles open, you can look at verses 11 to 15. It says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the paths are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may, so they may not believe and be saved. Jesus is saying here that every time the word is taught, we need to be aware of the war that's waging in our hearts. Every time we sit under it, are you aware of the war? Amos 8 verse 11 warns us. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of God. The enemy wants to come, and he wants to keep us distant from, cold from, separate from the good news because the good news liberates us and transforms our lives. The war place is taking place on the turf of our hearts, even now, even today. So let's ask the uncomfortable questions. How did you come into the room this morning? What is the thought of your heart? Is this just another religious habit 
Are you merely ticking the box of what you needed to do this week on Sunday? Or are you aware of the war that's raging in your heart this morning? Are you coming hungry, desiring the protecting, preventing, delivering grace of Jesus? So how does this happen? What are some of the practical ways that we can find that the word can be snatched away from us? Maybe you're sitting here and you're listening for your friend. And you're thinking, wow, I'm so glad that Wendy is sitting next to me because this is just for her. Wendy really needs this message. How many of us have done that? I think we can all confess, you know, we do. It's a terrible thing. And, and I think it comes from a place, a good place, because we, we know Wendy's problem. And we're like, she really needs to hear this. And our heart is good. But it is wrong when we are removed from that same word because we're so badly applying it to our friend Wendy that I'm not looking and saying, God, what are you saying to me today? So that's an easy way that Satan comes and snatches the word from us. Stephen Connick says it like this. When I talk about the second thing, is about being theologically removed. So we, we analyze the word so much where we, we say, oh, what's happening? Where's it coming from? Where's this person taking this? Are they taking the body? And I'm sure, see, you do this often. Where are we going with this message? Maybe he's doing it right now. So we, we're theologically analyzing and critiquing the message so much that we're completely removed from it. And we can leave you thinking, what actually was that person saying? Stephen Connick says, a man may be theologically knowing and spiritually ignorant. That's a very scary thought. So we must actively decide to receive the word, not with our heads, but with our hearts. And just asking God every time we come, every Sunday, Lord, just show me what you have for me today. Otherwise, we are in danger of the word being snatched away from us as well. Secondly, the seeds fall on rocky ground. Verse 13, those on the rock are the ones who receive the, the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Let's not be fooled. The test of our true receiving the word is not the wonderful, immediate, momentary joy we feel after hearing a wonderful message on a Sunday, but it's rather in the weeks ahead as we walk out the room when the hardships of life and the persecution of the gospel drive you beyond your strength, beyond your wisdom and your righteousness, when life just doesn't work as you want it to work. R.C. Sproul says it like this, We have to determine our theology from the word of God, not from what we feel. When I talk about theology, I mean what we believe in, what we live out in a response to, and how it affects the way we live. So hear this, you will face trouble, trials because God has chosen to keep us in a world that doesn't operate as it was intended to. God chooses to use the trials as tools of sanctification and growth. And sanctification is just saying us becoming more like Christ. And don't we need to be sanctified over and over and over and over again? These moments will either confirm, so these moments of trials and tribulations either confirm our belief in the, in the word or it causes us to doubt. In those moments, the word will give us great courage, great hope, great comfort, direction and strength. And we can experience 
with thankful hearts, the firm foundation that when our world is being rocked, we have the sturdy foundation of God's word. We will not be shaken, not because of ourselves, but because of God's word deeply planted in us. Or we can bring God into the court of our judgment. We can begin to wonder if our theology, what we believe, is accurate. If those things that God's word says are true, we begin to doubt his goodness. We begin to question the word in the troubled, hard times. And quietly and subtly, we just have this little inkling of, God, are you, what you say, is it true? There will be persecution as well, because the gospel is an offense. Some of you may be surprised at this, but our lifestyle, if formed by the gospel, will be countercultural. There will be natural ways that you live and respond that will offend other people, so don't be surprised by it. If you are testifying to the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, it will upset people. So will the courage and perseverance of that be the result of the word of God being poured out in your life and being confirmed in that moment? Or will those experiences lead to a deep fear of man, timidity, and compromise? told you I'm hitting you deep this morning. Number three, the seeds fall amongst the thorns. We're going even deeper. Be prepared. Verse 14, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. There's a war of desire that takes place in our hearts as long as sin abides in us. And this is an important thing that Jesus in Matthew 6 points to. He says the pro, this process is called our treasure. A treasure is something of value. Jesus says there are two types of treasures. We have earthly treasures. And these are things like our physical experiences on earth, our relationships, our possessions, and achievements. And these are things that God gives us to enjoy, such as beauty, taste, smell, touch, our relationships. We are social beings, but it's also a warning that these things should not rule our hearts. We cannot allow them to take the place of our spiritual need, our identity, our meaning, our purpose, and our deepest sense of well-being. Charles, Charles Spurgeon warns us to hold everything earthly with a loose hand, but to grasp eternal things with a death-like grip. Jesus tells us to desire heavenly things, and literally, this is our desire for God. And he summarizes it by the verse, but seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. So my life needs to be ruled by this desire to know God that I may know him, that I would serve him, that I would grow in him, that I would please him, that I would be part somehow of his kingdom work and that my desire for him, his glory, and the furthering of his kingdom is what drives my life. The way you receive the word will be conditioned by what desires rule your heart. We are not seeking, let me tell you again, we are not seeking the good life now. There's a beautiful eternal life that we look forward to. This is not it, people. Let's not make it so good. <laughs> because maybe then that's not as it should be. So the way you receive the word will be conditioned 
by what desires rule your heart. We are all tempted by this. But I want to remind us that we cannot squeeze the demands, the glory and purposes of God into the drivenness of our Western culture value system. It just won't work. And it's a choice we need to make daily. So as we sit here, I want to ask you to think about what are the things that choke your faith? What are the things that take your eyes off God? Would you think about them this week? We need to not only think about them, but we need to look at them in that mirror and acknowledge them and and work out what our response is going to be and how we're going to change our actions to say no to them. It has eternal significance. Number four, the seed falls on good soil. So they hear the word and accept it and they bear fruit. This is what we all want to be. (laughs) This is what we all see ourselves in. We don't like to see the other little bits, but... These are people that come to the hearing of the word with a soft, deep acknowledgement of a needy heart, with a heart of humility, of expectancy, and a deep understanding of our desperate need for God's grace. We realize that this may not be the first time that you're hearing a message, but that you see it and your attitude is that of like when you first heard it for the first time, admitting you need it just as much now as what you did then. So we need to come with a sense of excitement, of expectancy, and a deep hunger and humility, lapping up each piece given to us so that it can take root in our lives and bear much fruit in us and through us to others. So today I ask you, what heart do you bring to God's word? The final little piece of the puzzle that's in the middle of this passage, which is so important for us to look at, is when Jesus talks to the disciples in verses 8 to 10. He says, then he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked what the parable meant. And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. What is Jesus saying here? What does he mean? He's saying that the teaching of the parables is both a grace and a judgment. Jesus is revealing the deep secrets of the kingdom to those that are around him, his chosen few. Remember in the beginning we said Jesus is inclusive. He wants all to come to him. And now we're kind of putting this puzzle together. We need to remember that any revelation we have, you sit here on a Sunday and something clicks, That's a divine revelation. It's not you being clever. (laughs) It's God's revelation of his word. And it's only by God revealing it to us, by his grace, that we are able to have our ears open towards him. He also talks about this judgment. And here we see that those that oppose Jesus, those that were around him, that were opposing him, that were rejecting him, that were mocking him, and that we're questioning the the preaching of the gospel, will be judged. John Calvin says, The people Jesus is talking about are enduring blame from Jesus for the blindness and the hardness of their own hearts. Jesus is teaching here that he is ultimately sovereign over his word. He chooses who will receive it, and he decides to whom he reveals the secret of the kingdom to. The punchline is verse 8b, He who has ears, 
let him hear. So this is a call for you and I to take responsibility for the way we receive the word. The balance is God in his sovereignty doesn't just bring about the end, but he gives us the means as well. This means that the way God chooses to execute his sovereign plan is by preaching and the belief in the word. So because it's part of his plan, Christ will declare his sovereignty, but at the same time, he calls the crowd to responsibility. That's the gospel. It's not either or, it's both and. Jesus uses the word here. He who has ears, let him hear. This means receiving the word. We must come open to hear. Our hearts must be ready, and that's the part we play. The truth is that we are so easily distracted. We fiddle with our phones. <laughs> we think about lunch. We think about the week we have ahead of us, all the things that we need to do, instead of coming into the room ready. We can ask God to give us focus, to clear our minds, and we must, to open our hearts, to declare to him that we want to receive the word that he has in store for us for each day. It means we undertake to accept the word in its entirety, even the hard bits. It means we come with a humble heart, believing what he has said simply because he has said it. Where it's easy and where it's difficult, we don't argue against it. We receive it. We act on it. We determine that we will live in accordance with it, aligning our lives alongside it. And we live a hungry and thirsty life hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Finally, we can't help but look at this passage and understand that the one who is talking about the sower of the seed is himself the word, Jesus. So as we prepare to partake the Lord's Supper, maybe, Jono, you can come up and I'd love you to end us off with that Graves to Garden song. It's just so apt this morning. Thank you for that. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the lamb that was slain, and he came to suffer and to die so that we would have the grace to believe. Ephesians 2 verse 8 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. It is a gift of God, not by works that you should boast. Praise God for that grace. Praise God for his sovereign plan. And we do this by taking responsibility for the condition and character of our hearts as we hear God's word. As we come to the table, I'm going to ask us again, what heart do we bring? The good news is that the gospel means that we don't earn this right. It's a gracious given gift to us. Christ has finished all that is needed to be done. It's done. It's finished on the cross. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling a little bit condemned, that's okay. Because we come to a Jesus that has done it all. We understand that the, some of our hearts, we've allowed the seeds of God's word to fall on the path. We've allowed God's seed to fall on the rocky soil of our hearts. And we've allowed those weeds to grow up around us. We've allowed things to choke us. But we understand and appreciate today, and I'm reminding you of God's amazing grace and his kindness and all that he's done for us. Jesus' death and resurrection means that we are not alone. 
that by God's Spirit, which is in us, we get to try again, forgiven again, unjudged, because Jesus is the filter through which God sees us. So let's be quick to confess. Join me in that. As we pray and as we accept God's supper, be quick to confess before Him. We know our hearts are easily wavered, but Jesus loves us and He's forgiven us and He sees us just the way we are and He loves us still. If you're sitting here and maybe for the first time your ears have been opened to God's Word and you're realizing that you need this Jesus and you need to surrender to Him today again or for the first time, I want to say to you that He is all you need, that He is enough, that He is worth surrendering to. And I ask you to bow down to Him today. Acknowledge who He is and in your desperate need of Him, and acknowledge your desperate need of Him. Ask for His forgiveness and come to the table with the full assurance that as Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let us now take the cup and eat the bread of life as a symbol of all God has done.